All right, we uh, continue our series looking at First uh, Kings and Second Kings, looking at the life of and ministry of Elijah and Elisha. We are still in Elijah, and so we're in First Kings chapter 21 uh, this morning. And so, if you want to turn your Bibles there, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen for you. It's a very, very long passage, and so I'm gonna, not going to read the whole thing uh, at the beginning this morning. I'm going to read the first 16 verses. And then we'll take a break, and between, before each point, we'll read the next section. But first, now we read the first section, verses 1 through 16. Hear God's, hear God's word. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I have it for a vegetable garden. Who would make such a trade? Uh, and because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down in his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? In other words, aren't you the king? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, letters, proclaim it fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him, and the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard it, that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to the Lord. That's not a fun text, now is it? The perspective, though, by which you read this text is very important for understanding what this passage is trying to communicate. I believe it's our natural inclination uh, to read stories like this from the Bible as essentially outsiders from the story. And as, as those on the outside, we feel a certain way about what happened here. We read this account in the first 16 verses, and we are what? What emotional experience do we have as we read this? We get angry. We are appalled by this abuse of power, this utter, utter abuse. We are indignant at the injustice. We're offended, and we're, we're outraged at Ahab and Jezebel. But what if that is not the perspective from which you're supposed to read this text? I'll tell you, here's the perspective in a similar way, the way you should read it. 
It's the same perspective Nathan calls David to listen to a particular story. Remember, Nathan the prophet, after David had sinned with Bathsheba, he came to David and he told him this little vignette, this little parable. And he said, David, I got a story for you. It's about a guy who was very, very wealthy, very rich. He had many, many sheep and many, many goats, and he was rich, rich beyond belief, but he had a poor neighbor. And this poor neighbor had one special lamb that the whole family loved. It was like a pet, an adored animal in the family life. And the rich man had a, vi- a visitor come to visit with him, and instead of slaughtering one of his sheep, went and stole from the, from the poor, impoverished man his one singular sheep and slaughtered that lamb and gave it to the food to his guests. And David listens to the story as one outside of it. And he is indignant, as we would be indignant about the story of Naboth. And he hears it and he goes, something must be done. This cannot be done in the land of Israel. And then what happens? Nathan looks at David and he says, no, David, you are in the story. In fact, you are the rich man. For you have stolen another man's wife. In other words, what we have there is we have the blood boiling over the injustice in this world, and yet the blood that is once boiling, when God turns his finger and looks at us, it suddenly grows cold and all the blood drains from our head. That is the experience the prophets want you to have from this text. To see yourself and what is our role. Where are we in this passage? Let me see if I can show you. First point this morning. Point one. What this passage is telling us in the verse 16 verses is that God's people are unjust. God's people. Let's just walk through, taking the kind of pedantic route of just kind of going through the story and explaining it real briefly, you know, maybe give a few points and highlights here and there. First, Ahab. Ahab, what's going on here is Ahab is king in Samaria, but he has a vacation home in Jezreel. It's about 20 miles north, uh, northeast from the capital of Samaria. But and unfortunately for Naboth, his his vineyard uh, is right next to uh, Ahab's vacation home. And Ahab wanted the property of Naboth to, to plant a vegetable garden. He was going to tear down the vineyard and, and plant vegetables, where you, can, you know, the collards and, and butter beans and mac and cheese. These are the type of things that he wanted to, to plant uh, as great vegetables in the, the vegetable garden. And so he makes an offer, and frankly, it's quite a reasonable offer, isn't it? Ahab is not being mean and overusing his power. He goes to Naboth and says, I'll give you a better vineyard, or I'll pay you what your vineyard is worth. Now, Naboth's response in verse 3, this is the only words we hear from Naboth, although it repeats it like three different times in the passage. To make very clear, Naboth is the righteous man here. And here's all that he says. He says, Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, here you have to understand something of Old Testament law. The land of promise, Canaan, the land of Israel, was given by God to the people of Israel. It was God's land. And when he gave that land to them, he apportioned it out by tribe and by family to specific groups of people. And they were challenged and they were called in Leviticus chapter 25 that they were never to sell off and get rid of their family land. Unless they were in utter and absolute dire circumstances, they could lend the land and let someone pay them for the land to use it for vegetable gardens or crops or for cattle. But at the year of Jubilee, they would receive that land back in full. And so what Naboth is saying here is that I'm not in a place of distress. This is the land that God has given to me. And in being faithful to God's covenant with me and my family, I cannot give this up. In other words, he gives a religious example. He has shown that he is a righteous man who lives before the fear of God and in light of God's instructions for how to live in this world. In other words, Naboth is probably one of the 7,000 righteous 
that are left in Israel that we heard about last week. Well, how does Ahab respond to this? Well, Ahab responds like your traditional six-year-old. He goes home, he's being refused, and it says he goes home vexed and sullen. In other words, vexed is he's quite confused that he's not getting his way. He's like, no comprende, someone told me no. Says this man, he was not getting his way, and he's upset, and so he gives himself to a monarchical pout in his bedroom. The, The account here in the description is actually quite comical. Do you see it? He runs to his bedroom like a teenager, slams the door, throws himself on his bed in a frump and looks and stares at the wall. And as their servants come to try to cheer him up with food, he refuses to eat. This is a kingly temper tantrum. Well, Jezebel comes in and she's not having any of this. And so she comes in and she says, this is ridiculous behavior for somebody who's a king. She actually comes in and mocks him. She says, aren't you the king This is not how my daddy in Phoenicia would behave. He is a king too. And where I'm from, if you're the king, you know what you do? You take what you want. And so Jezebel treats Ahab like the child that he is. And she says, listen, listen, it's okay. I'm here. I will take care of it for you. She says, don't worry, baby. I'll get some things done. I'll make sure that you have the vineyard. And so Ahab finally orders his lunch. And Jezebel strides off to the executive suite in order to write some letters on the letterhead of Ahab. This is where we pick up the next portion. What does she do? On the Ahab's letterhead, she sends out letters to the elders and nobles in Naboth's land with the explicit instructions. And she says, proclaim a fast and make Naboth sit at the head of the people and have two lowlifes come and falsely accuse him and then take him out of cursing God and then take him out and stone him for, his, for cursing God and for cursing the king. And this is exactly what happened. As Jezebel was accustomed, the local leadership carried out her plan precisely. Now, what is the point of these first 16 verses? Here is what is trying to be communicated, that the evil plan combines two things. What I want you to see, the evil plan of Jezebel combines two things. First, the use of religion to cover over evil. And second, the collaboration of God's people to implement evil. The cover of the religious system to cover over evil, she instructs them to declare a day of fasting. This is what you would do. Why would you call it fast? It was, it was to declare that something is wrong. It's the same thing that, um, that Joshua did when Achan had stolen the, 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 um, the plunder from uh, Jericho and kept it for himself when God said, you are not to steal the plunder. And so Joshua calls a fast. It's to say there's something wrong in our midst, and we're going to find out. We're going to put ourselves in a place where we're ready for the judgment. And so that's what she calls them to do. She knows her Israelite history. She uses the religious call of fasting And then she says, oh, get two false witnesses. What does she know? She understands that an Israelite court of law, what God had given in his law to his people was this, that you cannot put someone to death based on the witness of one person. You needed two witnesses. And so she's also using God's law. She understands the bylaws. She understands the book of church order. And she will use it in order to get her way. She will put this veneer of religion and legality upon her evil so that she can get away with it. So, this is what she's doing. The T's of injustice have been crossed, and the dots of evil have been rightly placed. This is what Jezebel is doing. She gives this veneer of legitimacy to this heinous and evil act of injustice. But then there's the second component. And that is the collaboration of God's people in the implementation of this evil. You see, it all could have been stopped if good men 
had stood up to an evil woman. And it had stood up to a passive king. Jezebel's scheme only works if the elders and the leaders of the city of Jezreel play along. And yet we read nothing of any protest, of anyone or any, any attempted defense of Naboth. By this omission, the writer is seeking to depict the people of Jezreel and Jezreel's leaders negatively for their slobbering, slobbering subservience to the queen. These local magistrates should have stood their ground. In other words, this is a classic experience of, as Edmund Burke says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for what? Good men to do nothing. But that is not all that's going on here. It is not simply the men of Jezreel and their leaders like we're innocent bystanders and go, oh yes, well we can't stand in the way or the queen will have us killed or we will be very threatened by this. That's not all that's going on. It's not just that good men fail to act. It's that in the very people of God, there were those so willing to remain comfortable and beholden to evil that not only did they not resist evil, but they added to it. They were so well acquainted with the role of evil that they could read between the lines of what Jezebel wrote in the letters. Because we find out in 2 Kings chapter 9 that not only did they kill Naboth, they also killed all of Naboth's family. In other words, in the language of the TikTok song, they understood the assignment. They knew what they were supposed to be doing. They knew that the role here was not simply to take out Naboth as the one who owns the land, but they understood the assignment, which is to remove the inheritor and all of those, all those sons who might receive this land. This is what they're trying to do. And so the point of this passage is trying to communicate to us this, that this is about evil and injustice in the midst of God's people. And the evil does not simply reside at the top. It goes down all the way to the bottom. In other words, for an act of such injustice and heinous evil and treachery to happen and amongst God's people, it was not simply the king and the queen who were evil. It took the thumbs up and the approval of God's people to let this happen. You see, what's the original audience of First and Second Kings? It is Israel in captivity. And the point of the passage and the perspective here that we're supposed to have is not, we are Naboth, and look, aren't we the wonderful, righteous church who sometimes endures persecution? That is not the purpose of this text. The purpose of the text to the original audience was, you want to know why you're enslaved? You want to know why God removed you from the land of Israel? It wasn't just because you had some bad kings. It was because you wholesale as a society, as a culture, as God's people rejected God and you actually you, you did something so heinous that you used heresy like religion and my law to cover over your evil this is the point of this passage and you understand that this is not if you think about who we are in this text we are the city of Jezreel this is God's people this is not a message to the evil people out there. This is a message God's prophets are bringing to God's covenant people, Israel. And as we understand, where are we? We are God's covenant people. The church is God's covenant people. And so this is a prophetic account where God's prophets are sent among, to God's people to confront injustice and evil found at church. Found at church. 
You see, has Christianity ever been used to cover over injustice? Oh, yes. We can't simply stand off and shake our heads over the flaky fellows of Jezreel City Hall. No, we have to see ourselves in the story. We are the man. Slavery, apartheid, dictatorial socialism of the 20th century found the backing of many segments of the church worldwide. Sex scandals in the Roman Catholic Church. Not only was the evil perpetrated by those leading the church, but then it was covered over by those leading the church. You ever seen the pictures of lynchings from the old Jim Crow South? They would put ads in the paper. The whole town would know about it. Which means the deacons would go to the lynching on Saturday and then open the church doors on Sunday. We gave our thumbs up to evil. 20th century Marxism, vast chunks of the church, gave themselves over the doctrine of communism in large portions of the world and, and approved of the wholesale stripping of individual rights. And then, in our own denomination, a couple years ago, there was a history book outlining the history of the Presbyterian Church of America called The Continuing Church, in which the historian in that book outlined the significant role in which the PCA pastors and PCA churches rejected the civil rights movement entirely. In fact, large parts of why the denomination was even formed was to remove ourselves from anybody who had anything to do with the civil rights movement. Churches are now learning that they need to repent of the fact that they have abusers amongst their midst, and yet we have considered ourselves so holy and so righteous that we don't report them to the governmental authorities. And less than a month ago, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest denomination in our whole country, had an outside investigation that came to fruition in which the investigation showed the rampant, move, uh, the rampant uh, place of sexual abuse uh, by the role of pastors in their churches. And those pastors were not only not held accountable, but they were allowed to go from church to church to church, continuing their abuse. One of the accusations, they had many, many accounts in here, but one of them was made against the former SBC president's a pastor from our very area in Woodstock, Georgia, from First Baptist Woodstock, Johnny Hunt, who was accused of sexually assaulting another pastor's wife while at a beach vacation in Panama City, Florida. He invited her into his room, he assaulted her, and then, in the cover-up, called another pastor counselor in to address this family in a faux confession, then telling them they could never, ever tell anybody because he said, you know my position, 40,000 churches in America would be hurt if they found out what I've done. The investigation included account after account after account of this type of behavior from the top of the organization to the very bottom. For years, the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention sought to silence the voice of the abused. And you know who fought this cover-up the most? Those known in the denomination as to being the most theologically conservative. And the arguments against the investigation, you know what kind of veneer it took? Guess what? A religious and a legal one. They said things like this. They hid behind their ecclesiology saying, listen, these churches are independent. They're congregationally run. We have no authority to tell these churches what they should do with the abuse of pastors in their midst. They hid behind the potential damage this would do behind the denomination and to their good name. And they hid behind the private and said this, this, is gonna, this investigation and all these scandals, this is going to distract us from our mission. And in this, they failed to understand actually the mission of the church. Because the mission of the church is that we are to be an alternative kingdom. An alternative kingdom to the injustice that goes on out here amongst God's people, such things must not happen. 
And, and we are to be called a, what does Peter, or Peter call us? A holy nation. To be a place where justice flourishes, where the abused are protected, where the abusers are cast out, where evil is called evil. And when we do not, when we are happy to participate in and provide religious backing for the protection of evil, we are committing treason against God himself. Martin Luther, the reformer, said this, the church is the worst of all sinners. The worst of all sinners. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, what he means is, listen, when pagans act like pagans, that should be expected. They don't know the God of the Bible. They don't know the work of Jesus Christ. They don't have the Savior. But when God's covenant people sin and seek to cover over our sin with God's very religious practices, then that is a treason against our Lord and our Savior. And it must not happen amongst God's people. In the words of Tamar, after the horrific injustice that she faced at the hands of David's son, she said, such a thing should not happen in the land of Israel. And so it is amongst God's church. Aren't you happy you came to church today? We, we, we read on. Let's see if we can find God's response. Picking up in verse 17, another lengthy reading. Reading on through verse 26. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord. Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord. In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? You see, those who are trying to hide from sin always view prophets as enemies. He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bonder free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin, and of Jezebel the Lord also the Lord said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone, any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. And then it gives this postscript. There was none who sold himself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. This is God's prophecy against the unjust. At the end of verse 16, if we were to end there, and we paused for quite a long time to look at it, at the end of verse 16, it seems the evil has prevailed, doesn't it? Injustice has gone unanswered. The abuse victims are silenced. The witnesses are put down. The abusers are promoted. Ahab gets his vineyard, and God appears to be out of the picture. God seemingly appears to be silent in the face of this injustice. And then you get to verse 17. Now the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite. How does God's response to injustice when he finds it in his house? What does he see? There is no rioting in the streets, but God is going to speak and to act. This is a God who sees. That even though Jezebel has shredded all the letters, they have removed all the evidence, God says, I have seen the injustice, and I will act. This is the all-seeing eye of God. That even in the world, when in this moment, in this place, there is not justice that appears to be done, God says, I have seen it. 
He is the all-seeing eye. Reminds me of the story, Ralph Davis, who was one of my favorite commentators on 1 Kings, shared a story about a, a pastor named um, John Kennedy, not that John Kennedy. This is a John Kennedy from the mid-18th century in Dingwall, Scotland. He, it's a kind of a picturesque town in the Scottish Highlands. And, and, and while he was there, there was a local kind of kerfuffle that happened because um, uh, someone's house was robbed. They had a plum tree, and all of the plums were stolen from the plum tree by what they believed to be a young man, a young boy in the community. But after several months and much gossip had passed, the culprit was still undiscovered. Well, one Sabbath day, there was a uh, children's service at the Free Church of Scotland there where Dr. Kennedy was the pastor. And he took for his text that day, Psalm 11, verse 4, as he spoke to the children. It goes like this. Psalm 11, verse 4 says, God, his eyes see all, and his eyelids test the children of man. So as he was going about his children's sermon... Then as he, he comes along, sharing about how God sees everything, and then he comes to the end of his sermon, and rather dramatically, he concludes his sermon by saying this, and the boy is with us this evening who stole the plums. I will not in, look in his direction lest I betray him, but I know him, for I saw him from my study window. I saw the wall leaped, the pockets filled, the breathless haste home. He thought no one saw, but I saw. And more importantly, God saw. That is the point here. Jezebel and Ahab think they have gotten away scotch-free, but God has seen. And when God sees, God speaks. As the theologian Francis Schaeffer has put it, he says it this way, God is here and he is not silent. And so Yahweh sees the lifeless form of Ahab's broken body. He sees the black bodies strung up by deacons of Jim Crow churches. He sees the battered bodies of women crushed by abusive pastors and the sexually manipulated. And he says in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. For he sees and he knows and he acts. And he will speak. And the God who sees injustice, the God who speaks against injustice, and this Yahweh is the one who will act against it as well. And so what does he prophesy? This wonderful little prophecy about dogs lapping up blood. Wouldn't you read this to your kids tonight as they go to bed as a wonderful good night story? And if you disobey, mom and dad, may the dogs lap up your blood in the streets. Good night, children. Love you. And it's, but it's exactly what happens. In 2 Kings chapter 9, Jezebel is thrown off a, oh, out of a window and she dies and the dogs come and eat her. All the sons of Ahab of, are killed by the king to come named Jehu. In the very next chapter, Ahab himself will die at the hand of another king. So if I could remind you of this. You see, God is not simply sitting here and pointing his finger like Nathan does to David And saying you are wrong, but then he also points out the fact of what our unjust, our injustice and injustice in our churches, what it deserves. God is willing to bring his justice down even upon those who are called his covenant people. Because he loves his church. And he will not abide by such impurity to go about undealt with in his church. And so he will cleanse his people and he will make us more like we are rightly supposed to reflect his kingship and his kingdom in this world. And so I ask you, listen, I gave you the low-hanging fruit of the things of the past, but the question is this. Where are those areas as a church today 
that people will look to the church to cover over their sins, where we are giving religious backing for evil that is being done by your leaders in the church and in the community. Where, where is our wonderful worship services and our quaint church buildings being used to cover over evil being done in the name of God? I, I am not too stupid to say where I think that might be. Maybe you should come up with your list. We continue on, though. Verses 27. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. This has not been a very uplifting sermon, has it? You are the man. Here's what you deserve. Now, what do we do? What do we do in that place? And here we see finally God's invitation to the unjust. If you know anything about the story of Ahab, this action by Ahab is quite the stunner. He seems to humble himself and has remorse and grieves over his sin. But even more stunning for us, the reader, and perhaps downright offensive in the face of such crass abuse of power and evil doing, is God's response to Ahab. There seems, and you see God's response, there's like a mixture of delight and excitement in Yahweh's words. He looks at Elijah and he goes, did you see that? He wept over his sin. He tore his clothes. Can you believe it? And it leaves us wondering, is God naive? Can he not smell out a rat when he sees one? Does he not see false repentance? Has Yahweh simply gone soft Yahweh had it right in verses 17 through 24. Let the dogs lick his blood. No, don't listen to his weeping and his crying. This is not real repentance. What are we to make of the stunning response by Ahab? Well, I hold that his re- re- repentance here is probably not ultimately a sincere one. I believe it is true and momentary, but it is not lasting. It was not ultimately this serious because it was temporary. Apparently, he did not relinquish his claim on Naboth's vineyard. Right? Remember... When, um, what's his name? Who's the small guy in the New Testament? Zacchaeus, thank you. Zacchaeus, what happens when he is confronted with his injustice? He gives back fourfold of what he has stolen. That is true repentance. So what we see here is probably more like remorse rather than real repentance. But that leaves us going, well, what about the question about what in the world is the deal with God? Well, what do we make of God's response here? Well, I don't believe that God is naive or duped by Ahab's response, but I believe that God and the author here is communicating something to those of us who have been compliant in injustice and purveyors of abuse and evil in our own lives. And it is this, don't you see the heart of your God? Do you not see the readiness of God that even the outward, only the outward sign of remorse leads God to be willing to relent and bring mercy. In the face of Ahab's shabby, shallow, and hollow repentance, which is, by the way, like most of ours, the focus here is Yahweh's open nerve endings that are always twitching towards mercy. 
And in this mercy of God to delay justice, what we have here from God is an appeal, an invitation to Ahab and to Israel, and now to us as his church. He's inviting us not to have mere remorse, but into truer, deeper, and a longer repentance. A repentance that bears fruit, as it says in Matthew 3.8. You see, the mercy of God that responds so quickly, even to false repentance, is saying, how much more merciful would your God be if he were to see true repentance? How much more God might God relent and bring care and grace and mercy to a church that gets on its knees and repents of its participation in injustice? In other words, what I'm saying is that 1 Kings 21 is the prophetic voice, similar to that of Revelation chapter 23, when God chastises his church in Laodicea for their love of riches and for being lukewarm. And then God says this, though. At the, minute, at the, at the end of chastising them for like three or four verses, he calls them lukewarm. He then says this in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So church, what are those evil things for which we need to repent? Where have we participated in such injustices and given it cover? And then what might it look like to enter into repentance? Do you see the mercy of God inciting us? Not towards remorse, towards some white guilt, or some overreaction to giving people whatever they want, whatever claims they have but a repentance that would say, God, we have, been, we have been part of horrific evils and we must make this publicly known and we must make amends for this and we long to experience your mercy. One final conundrum to close. You kind of want to say, well, that's great that God eventually got the unjust ones and the evil doors out of his house, but that didn't help Naboth. You see, isn't delayed justice for people like Naboth just another form of injustice itself? See, for God to relent of his wrath against Ahab, Naboth had to pay the cost, didn't he? He had to bear the injustice in his body with no recompense. And the question for you then is, at what expense does God's delay of justice for his church? At whose expense does that come? In the hopes that there is true repentance amongst God's covenant people, who pays that price? The true Naboth. His name is Jesus. Consider this. Consider the time of Christ's crucifixion. What do we have? Let's look at the details. The religious leaders make plans to put Jesus to death. They conspire against him. Then we have the feckless and passive Pilate who gives his approval. We have the chanting crowds zealously joining in in the injustice. And we have the false witnesses who are conjured up to give false testimony against Jesus. And then we have the backdrop of the cultural religious event known as Passover, all used to cover over the greatest injustice that has ever been known to man, the crucifixion of Christ. And they took his life. The one who is known as the vine, they slaughtered. See, God's delay here in 1 Kings 21, is looking towards the Messiah to come and God's patience with his church that often finds itself approving of evil. He says, my delay of wrath is paid out upon the true and better Naboth, Jesus.
And my judgment tarries now, but one day it will not any longer. But these moments in this time between his first coming and his last have been blood-bought by the blood of Jesus so that my church may repent and come back to me. You see, for Jesus' blood cries out from the ground is a better word. You know, there's a strange passage, and we end with this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. It says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than that of Abel. You know Abel? Remember Abel? Abel's brother Cain, the two brothers, first two brothers we see in the account of the scriptures in Genesis chapter 4. Cain unjustly kills his brother, and Abel's blood cries out. And what does Abel's blood cry out and scream from the ground? Justice. Justice. But Jesus, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, 14, his blood cries out something better. Because Jesus, having taken the justice of God for the very sins committed against him, now his blood is crying out what? Mercy. 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 And it's that mercy that incites God's people to finally look at ourselves and to see ourselves in the story and to repent. Let's pray. God, I didn't want to come today. I didn't enjoy writing this sermon. I really didn't enjoy preaching it all that much either until the last line. And yet, Lord, I believe this is the truth of what your, God, your word is telling us and it's challenging our, us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us now some holy insight by the Spirit of God. Spirit, come and show us where we, whether in our history or even more importantly right now, are those who are giving cover to evil, where we are participants in evil as a church. Lord, we are so easily deceived. And so, God, I pray that you would come and like Nathan did and shock us, perhaps, if, it need, if we need to, to have Nathan look at us in the eye and say, you are the man. And that, Lord, like David, we would begin to write psalms like Psalm 51, crying out of our guilt and confessing our sin. And that you would lead us to true repentance. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are beckoned, as David said, that he longs to be restored to you and experience your mercy. May your mercy appear to us to be new every morning. May we hear the beckoning call of Christ's blood at the bottom of the cross. We pray in his name. Amen.